Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's such a blessing and a pleasure to be here to speak to you as we draw to the end of another year and look towards another Christmas. There's plenty to think about. It's been a turbulent year. It's been a difficult year. And so it's a real blessing for me to be able to come and share. Uh, So I want to just bring Christmas wishes from myself, of course, and my family and our whole RZIM team here in Singapore and globally too. I'm here today to talk to you about a question. Isn't Christianity arrogant and exclusive? Now, it's a question that's often asked of the Christian, but also a question that is often asked by the Christian. Isn't this whole idea, this message of Jesus, an arrogant and an exclusive message? Now, some time ago, there was a survey done of the best movies of all time. And obviously, it's very difficult because movies are so subjectively enjoyed to work out what's the best and what isn't. But it's interesting that the movie that won was a very old American movie called Citizen Kane from the 1930s. Some of you will have seen that, I'm sure. And the movie is an interesting one. It's actually a biopic. It's it's based loosely on a real person, but it's a biopic of a, a fictional character by the name of Tom Kane. And the opening scene of the movie is Tom Kane dying in his home. He's a multi-billionaire. He's living in an enormous mansion. And he's sitting by himself all alone in a room, a big leather chair. And he takes his last breath. And with that, he says his final word, rosebud. He says the word rosebud, and then he dies. And the only way it is even known that he said something before he died, is because his staff, his servants, actually overheard him say, Rosebud. And the rest of the movie is an entire flashback of Tom Kane's life. And it follows the path of an investigative journalist who's trying to work out and investigate why he said this word, Rosebud. What does Rosebud actually mean? So scene one is Tom Kane dying in his enormous mansion. And scene two is a flashback right to the childhood of Tom Kane, when he's seven or eight years old, and he's playing happily in his backyard with his parents inside, in the snow. It's a beautiful, snowy day. The sun is out and the backyard is covered with snow, and he's playing on a little sled, sliding around on this sled. And his parents call him inside. And it turns out that there is a man there waiting to take Tom Kane away. He was so happy, and now he's going inside, and his life changes in a completely unrecognisable way. Because it turns out that gold has been discovered on the Kane family estate. And so suddenly this family has become incredibly rich. And so Tom Kane's parents want him to now have the best education that money can buy. And so they call him inside, he packs his things, and he's taken away. And he does get exactly that, the best education that money can buy and he goes on to go to the best colleges and he goes into business and he buys newspapers he owns a media empire he goes on to become an enormously successful industrialist he becomes a multi-billionaire and then at the end of his life which is the right at the beginning of the movie he dies uttering this word rosebud now the interesting thing about tom kane's life is it's actually not that much different to anyone else that's ever lived This is a person who's been given certain resources and capacities, and he's looking for fulfillment. And while he has found incredible success 
economically and financially in terms of his status, his reputation, his power, his influence. There are other aspects of his life that haven't gone so well. He leaves his first wife, and then his mistress, whom he left with, leaves him. He's estranged from those he loves, and he winds up dying all by himself. Now, why do I tell this story? Well, I tell this story because you've just heard an incredibly important passage of the Bible read to you about a conversation between Jesus and a man called Nicodemus. And there are enormous and fascinating parallels between Nicodemus and Tom Kane. Both of these men have huge amounts of influence, Both of these men are incredibly rich, they're incredibly well-respected, and yet both of these men are looking for something else. They are looking for fulfillment. They are looking for answers. And it's in that context I want to address this question. Isn't Christianity arrogant and exclusive? Because part of the Christian message, in fact, the core of the Christian message, is that it seeks to provide those very answers. The questions of the human heart, the need for meaning, for purpose, for fulfillment, for flourishing, and for so much more, the Christian message claims, audaciously claims to satisfy those needs. It claims to answer those questions. And with those answers, oftentimes comes the allegation that it is being arrogant or it's being exclusive. Now, what all of this hinges around is the concept of truth. It all hinges around the concept of truth. And so I want to talk about four aspects to truth that Nicodemus encounters on that day that he had that incredible conversation with Jesus. First of all, the nature of truth. Secondly, the character of truth. Thirdly, the challenge of truth. And fourthly and finally, the person of truth. The nature of truth, the character of truth, the challenge of truth, and the person of truth. Firstly, then, the nature of truth. Now, this is fascinating because Nicodemus has pretty much achieved everything you could want to achieve in his profession. He's the chief teacher of the Jewish people. He's the teacher of the teachers, if you like. He's like the equivalent of being a tenured Harvard professor with an adjunct professorship in Oxford and Princeton and Cambridge and Yale and NUS all at the same time. He's so well regarded. He's so well acknowledged and taken care of. And yet, in the middle of the night, He comes to see Jesus, someone who is at this point in time, nothing more, at least intellectually and in the context of worldly achievement and power, an obscure preacher from Galilee that some people are following. And yet Nicodemus has seen evidence of the miracles of Jesus already. He has seen and heard of what Jesus has been saying. He knows there is more to it than the life of fulfillment and intellect and wisdom and power that Nicodemus has understood and known for his whole life. And so in the middle of the night, this man of enormous power, enormous influence, comes to meet Jesus. And Jesus begins by telling him the truth. Now, the interesting thing is Nicodemus is an enormously well-respected person. And yet Jesus, while he's not particularly rude, he doesn't really give Nicodemus any kind of acknowledgement or reverence because of you know, what he does, because of his achievements, because of his role or status in society. Jesus is just there to deliver the truth. And the one key line that I really want to focus on this morning is when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. He says, if someone wants to see the kingdom of God, 
they need to be born again. And this is what really throws Nicodemus in lots of different ways. But there is something that we can acknowledge early in relation to the nature of truth. Jesus says, very truly I say to you, or truly, truly I say to you, some translations say. And Jesus only does this a handful of times where he repeats the word truly, truly. He's basically saying, I'm telling you the truth, the absolute truth. This is really important. When he repeats himself like that, it's about Jesus really straining to get the message through that what I'm about to tell you is incredibly important and it's absolutely and entirely true. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus this truth. He prefaces it with, truly, truly, I say to you, for a man to see the kingdom of heaven, first he must be born again. Now, what can we take from this, at least analogically? We see clearly here that according to this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Truth is exclusive. Truth is absolute. And truth is independent of who believes it or doesn't believe it. It didn't really matter how powerful or well-regarded or credentialed Nicodemus was. And it didn't really matter how obscure Jesus was or even how hated Jesus might have been by some of Nicodemus's colleagues. The truth is the truth. And Jesus says, you've come to see me. I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth is absolute. And the truth is exclusive and it's completely independent of what we think of it. It actually absolutely is unaffected by whether or not you believe it or I believe it or how wealthy we are or how intelligent we are. The truth simply is what it is. Now, fascinatingly, in today's world, increasingly, truth is determined by feelings or truth is influenced by how we feel about it. And so we take the truth or where the evidence points to be the truth. And instead of accepting what it is and trying to conform our lives to it, we try and take the truth and conform it, it into what we want to accord with our lives. We take the truth and twist it and we try and change it and we pick bits out of it and we leave the things that we don't like. And we give ourselves these titles like free thinker, which basically is a post-truth mask that says, I will follow the truth and the evidence that points to the truth only to the extent that it fits with what I want to do, only to the extent that it feels good. Thinking with our feelings. Now, thankfully and interestingly, Nicodemus doesn't make this mistake. So we can say a lot of things about Nicodemus, but he's not a post-truth thinker. He's not a post-modern thinker. He knows you can't think with your feelings. He is smart enough to understand that that kind of thinking falls over logically. And we know it falls over logically today, just like Nicodemus did then. The sad thing is, a lot of us don't think about it very carefully. Let me just give you one very brief example. For anyone that ever says to you, or if you might hold this view, that there is no such thing as truth, that statement is an absolute truth claim. If anyone ever says to you there's no such thing as truth, you just smile at them and ask them, was that true? If they say yes, then they're acknowledging that there is such thing as truth and they're undermining their statement. If they say no, then they're acknowledging that their their statement is not true and they're undermining their statement. Either way, denying that absolute exclusive truth exists and is real falls over logically. But Nicodemus doesn't make this mistake. He doesn't make this mistake. He is smart enough to know that objective truth, absolute truth does exist. That's why he's come to find it. He knows that it's outside of himself. And he thinks this Jesus might be able to point him to it. That's why he has come. His struggle is more about what Jesus is saying not the fact that he is saying it. Jesus says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus freaks out at this point. And he asks, how can that be? How can I enter again into my mother's womb and be born again? So Nicodemus is not denying that truth exists. 
right? The claim that the Christian message is arrogant is not a claim that Nicodemus would have made that night because Nicodemus understood that asking whether or not something is arrogant is not really the point. The thing to ask is whether it's true. Whether something is true is what matters more than whether or not we make some kind of moral judgment on its arrogance or humility or whatever else it might be. And so Nicodemus is willing to engage with the truth claims of Jesus. He's just struggling to understand. And with that struggle, Jesus immediately engages with him. And we see this again and again in the Bible. We see it in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. We see it when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, meets Thomas the disciple who has doubts, who says, I just can't believe. We see it in the Old Testament where God says through his prophets, come, let us reason together. For people who are willing to take their questions to God and seek out the resources through the church and through the people of God, God gives evidence. God provides answers because the truth can stand up to questioning. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, okay, you accept that truth is exclusive, that truth is absolute. I'm going to point you at some evidence. And then Jesus talks about the wind when Nicodemus struggles to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, look, there are other things in your life that you don't completely understand, but you do have some evidence of. You don't know where and how the wind is going to blow, but you know that the wind exists. You know it's there. So straight away you can see, Nicodemus, that there are things that you already believe in, that you have faith in, that you take based on the evidence you have, even if you don't have all of the evidence. And in this is an important lesson for you and me, friends, because there is evidence that points to the truth of the Christian message if we are willing to follow it. And as the great philosopher, the father of modern philosophy, some people say, Plato said, all we need to do to find truth is follow the evidence to where it leads. So that's the nature of truth. It's real. We can know it. It's absolute. And we will find it if we follow the evidence to where it leads. But that's not really where Nicodemus falls over. He falls over more on the next two things I'm going to say. We've talked about the nature of truth. What about the character of truth? And this is where Jesus's declaration that you've got to be born again to see the kingdom of God really throws Nicodemus. Because when Nicodemus turns up, he says to Jesus, he gives him all kinds of respect and politeness, and he says, you are clearly a teacher from God. And the implication, of course, is teach me something. Give me some wisdom, some knowledge. Add to my already impressive body of awareness and understanding so that I can then grow closer to God, so I can teach these people, so that I can draw nearer to the fulfillment and the satisfaction and all of the things that I, you know, and for that matter, that Tom Kane and Citizen Kane, or that all of us have been searching for. So he approaches Jesus as a teacher seeking to morally and intellectually improve himself. And Jesus says, your problem is not moral performance. Your problem is not a lack of knowledge. Your problem is not that you have to try harder and do better. Your problem is not that you need information to be a good person. Your problem is not that you are not good enough. Your problem is that you are dead in your sins. You are dead to God. And this is the huge, huge revelation at the heart of the Christian message. Every other worldview tells you on some level that you are not good enough unless you do these things. And so you need to read these things, perform these rituals, believe in these philosophies, believe in these propositions, go to these buildings, join this club, join this group, join this church, go through these processes, and then you will be better. 
But Jesus says to Nicodemus, none of that will help. Because your problem is not a moral performance problem. Your problem is an ontological problem. The problem is not so much with what you do. It's first with who you are. So you don't need someone to come along and help you be better. You need someone to come along and raise you from death to life. To take you from being dead to being alive. And in saying that, Jesus completely blasts Nicodemus's diagnosis of the human condition. And more importantly, he completely turns on its head Nicodemus's understanding of how humankind can be rescued, can be put right with God. Jesus says it can only be done from outside of you. You need rescue. You don't need improvement. You don't need more lessons. You don't need more theology or philosophy or theories or behaviors or commands. None of those things are good enough because the problem is not that you're not trying hard enough. The problem is that you're dead. You are dead to God in your sins and you need to be raised to life. So when we look at the character of truth as Jesus declares it to Nicodemus, The character of truth that Jesus puts forward is that this truth is a confronting and an offensive truth because it calls for a qualitative transformation of the human condition, not a quantitative adjustment or a moral improvement, a complete qualitative ontological shift, a resurrection effectively is what Jesus is saying. And it's hugely offensive. He's effectively saying the first time you were born, it wasn't done right. You were born of flesh. You were all messed up. You are all broken. You're dead to me. You're dead to God in your sins. That's why you've got to be born again. And so what Jesus calls on is Nicodemus's and all of our ontological deadness and brokenness before God. And he says, you need something far more than knowledge. You need more than a teacher from God. And we're going to get to that in a moment. So the nature of truth, we see that it's absolute, that it's exclusive, and that it can be found if we are willing to follow the evidence to where it leads. But the character of truth is what is mind-blowing in this story because Jesus is saying you need a qualitative shift from death to life, not just a quantitative improvement in your behavior or how you think or what your knowledge base is. What about the challenge of truth? Because it's from this qualitative blasting that Jesus does that Nicodemus really shows where he is struggling at this point. Because because this Christian message that Jesus is starting to unpack is so offensive and so confronting, and Jesus has effectively said, you know, you're dead, you need to be raised to life. It's not just a question of moral improvement. Nicodemus now realizes that everything that he has, everything that he's worked for, everything that he's earned, actually means nothing in the context of his relationship with God. In getting himself right with God, nothing that he has done And he'd probably done more than anyone else at that point in his community and in his society. Nothing that he had done had actually made a difference. He still needs to be born again. And that's why when we get to the challenge of truth, the question for you and me, as it was for Nicodemus, is this. Finding the truth through evidence is one thing. Understanding the truth and understanding our brokenness and our need for rescue is another thing. The bigger question ultimately is going to be, whether or not you and I are affected by what that truth will cost us if we say yes to it. And that's where Nicodemus ultimately struggles in this particular story. Now, thankfully, we know that eventually Nicodemus does give his life to Jesus. He works out exactly who Jesus is, and he is transformed, and we have evidence of that in other parts of the Bible. But right now, right here, Nicodemus is struggling with the cost of what Jesus is saying. And it's exactly the thing that you and I tend to struggle with the most. 
Sometimes we dress it up with questions and we'll, we say we're looking for evidence or we say we don't quite understand this. And, and sometimes those are heartfelt and sincere questions and obstacles to our faith. But once all of those things have been responded to, and because this message is true, there is always a response. Once that is all done, the only thing really that stops people is what it's going to cost them. We are so protective of what we think we have to give up in order to follow Jesus, in order to give our lives to him. In fact, the word submission is probably the ugliest word in the world right now, certainly for the millennial generation and beyond it. The word to submit, to obey, is like the most hated word ever because we're all so concerned with what following Jesus is going to cost us. Even after it's been proven true, even after all the evidence pours out, what we really struggle with is paying that cost, which is actually ourselves. And it's funny that another part of the Bible shows this exact problem that other Pharisees had, other you know, friends and colleagues of Nicodemus who, who didn't like Jesus at all. After Jesus raised a man called Lazarus from the dead, and there were tons of eyewitnesses, and word got around, and word got around to these particular Pharisees. And what did they say when they heard about this? Now, bear in mind, unlike Nicodemus, these are guys that just hated Jesus, like they were out to get him. What did they say when they heard that Jesus had raised someone from the dead? Incontrovertible evidence. They didn't question the evidence. They didn't even question who Jesus was. They didn't even question that Jesus might actually be the Son of God. Instead, they said this. If we let this man keep doing what he's been doing, more and more people will follow him, and then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. They were worried about what it was going to cost them. They didn't stop to think about how amazing it was, how incredible it was that God had actually stepped into the world as a person. They straight away pivoted to their own tiny little frameworks of success and fulfillment. They had paradigms of fulfillment that were so small that they put before a proper and sincere engagement with who Jesus actually was. They were worried about their bank accounts, about their jobs, about their LinkedIn accounts, about their Twitter followers, about their Instagram feeds. They were worried about all of that stuff that we are worried about today. What is it going to cost you to follow the evidence, to follow the truth, to follow the person of Jesus? That's where Nicodemus struggled in this story. And it's where you and I struggle so much every day, regardless of whether we are Christians or not, or on our journey between. The nature of truth, the character of truth, but the challenge of truth. Are we willing to bear the cost of what it will cost us? Now, that's a difficult question because it involves trust. It involves putting our our faith and our trust and our hope in a message and a person that we might not know everything about. We might not be completely comfortable. We might still have things in our lives that we know we might have to give up or submit to him. Our autonomy, we have to give up and submit to him. Our independence, the myths of self-sufficiency that we've been living under, we might need to hand them over. On what basis are we willing to do that? I think it's fair for both the Christian and the skeptic to say, okay, God, I understand all of this qualitative stuff. I know that I'm broken and messed up. I know that no amount of effort in my own strength is going to get me there because it hasn't in the past. All the evidence is very clear. And I've asked all of my questions And I'll probably have more, but I see that the responses to these questions are there as well. But on what basis can I trust you by giving everything I am to you? I think that's a fair question to ask for the Christian and the skeptic. On what basis can we trust this God? 
And that's where we come to the fourth and final and most important aspect of truth, the person of truth. We've talked about the nature of truth, the character of truth, and the challenge of truth. Fourthly and finally, this is how the other three are all wrapped up too, the person of truth. And here is the amazing thing. Nicodemus is sitting across from Jesus saying, I can tell by how brilliant you are, how amazing you are, where all the evidence points that you are a teacher from God. Teach me something. What he didn't understand was that Jesus wasn't just a teacher from God. Jesus was God himself in the most perfect form of human expression possible in our world, sitting across from him. And Jesus wasn't just delivering the truth to Nicodemus. Jesus was and is the truth. And once again, we see the distinction in the Christian message, right at the heart of the Christian message. Every other worldview will point to things and say, this is true, this is true, this is true. Only the Christian God stepped into the world as a person, pointed to himself and said, I am the truth. The truth personified as a person. And that's what brings it together so beautifully and incredibly because it fits now with what Jesus was saying. I need you to understand that you need to be born again. You need to be brought back to life. You're dead to God. You need to be made alive to God. That's what Jesus is saying. The only way that's possible is by rescue. And rescue comes in the person of Jesus through relationship. If the truth was just propositional, we'd be left in our own strength to try and perform as best we can, as we are in so many of the other worldviews, but not in the core of the Christian message because it's relational. It's a relational rescue that comes through knowing God himself who can transform us. This person, Jesus Christ, who goes to a cross, you know, that goes to a cross, takes all of the brokenness and the need and the struggle and the hurt onto himself, not just of Nicodemus, but of all of humankind, of you and me, does away with it and through that then extends an offer of relationship to you and me today if we're willing to take him up on that offer of relationship. We can have that fulfilment, that deep, deep and ultimate fulfilment that we are all looking for. The person of truth is what makes sense of the whole thing. Jesus Christ himself. Thankfully, later on, Nicodemus accepted that, understood that and embraced that. What about you? That's the challenge for you and me today. Right at the end of Citizen Kane, just before the credits start rolling, because he doesn't really have any loved ones, he's he's estranged and disconnected from his family and his friends. And so his servants, his staff, are just burning all of his things. They're just throwing things into a furnace. And just before the screen goes black, and you think we're never going to find out what Rosebud means, one of the servants takes the little sled that he was playing in all those years ago and throws it into the furnace. And the camera zooms right in to a little plaque where it's got the name of the sled. Rosebud. Rosebud. At the end of his life, Tom Kane understood finally something that you and I know deep down in our hearts right now and that Jesus was trying to get across to Nicodemus that day. That ultimately, that fulfillment, that security, that belonging, that inner peace that we are all looking for, it ultimately can only come through relationship. For Tom Kane, analogically, it was when he was in loving, unconditionally loving relationship with his parents. And once that broke down, he never recovered from it. And what God is saying to you today, regardless of where you are, is that you have the opportunity to go deeper in that relationship with Jesus, if you already know him, or perhaps to step into that relationship with him. 
for the first time. The nature of truth, the character of truth, the challenge of truth, and the person of truth all points to a living, loving, up-close-and-personal offer of relationship that God is extending to you. How can that be exclusive if it's an invitation open to everyone? There is evidence and there is the universality of the message of Jesus. Is Christianity arrogant and exclusive? It can't be arrogant if it's true and it can't be exclusive if it's for everyone. And it's for you today to make that commitment or that recommitment right now. Thanks again for your time. Have a great Christmas and God bless.